All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything. Thank you for snow and warm indoors and friends and family and um, there's so many good things that you've given us. Thank you most of all for Christ and for salvation. I ask God that you would open up your word that we would see you more clearly love you more dearly follow you more nearly today. Touch us, Lord, where we need to be touched. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a handful of moments that each of us has experienced that are forever emblazoned in our memories. I was just filling out a questionnaire this week that asked about some of my childhood memories, and one of the most vivid memories that I had as a child was my grandmother's funeral. I was so young, but I still see it so clearly. To this day, it was the first time I had ever been exposed to the reality of death. Another memory, many years later, that is also forever etched into my mind was when my dad died. I remember our final words together in that hospital room. Those last moments as my sisters and I said goodbye. The silent car ride back to my mom's house. And the moment when we walked through the door and the last one through my door, through the door was my sister. She said, "Why? Why?" Many of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You have the same memories. We remember these moments because of the profound pain of death and because we know deep down that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. That was the anguish I heard in my sister's cry that afternoon. Why? Why is there death? Why do people die? Why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? It all feels so wrong. And that's because it is. <laughs> it is. Contrary to what the evolutionists would have you think, death is not natural. Nor is suffering or disease. There's something wrong with all of it. The idyllic world that God had created and declared good, as described in Genesis 1 and 2, a world without difficulty, disease, decay, death, sickness, suffering, strife, sorrow. It's a far cry from the broken world that we're in today. 
as Genesis 1 and 2 described the origin and essence of the universe and particularly of human beings. So our passage this morning describes the origins of this brokenness, of how and why it entered and persists in this fallen world. But that's not all that's contained in this narrative history. If we just know the reason why, why this world is in its current state, why humanity is in this current state, but are left with no hope for the future, there's nothing for it, Mr. Frodo. Amid the details of this record, we're also given a clear reason for hope clear reason for future deliverance from and victory over death and suffering, reason for redemption and for a future restoration if we believe God's word, if we trust God's word. That's the crux. We can know why this world is the way it is because the Bible tells us exactly why. And we can have the hope of redemption and future restoration because God's word gives us the reason for hope and the path to that hope. And so, your takeaway for this morning? Pretty straightforward. Trust God's word for God's word is trustworthy. Simple enough, huh? Trust God's word, for God's word is trustworthy. This is first and foremost what our passage is about. It was the failure to trust God's word that corrupted the world initially. And it was only through trusting God's word that they would and we can have hope. So I'm going to point you to three aspects of this passage that will hopefully not only bear this truth out, but will also convince you of the necessity of trusting God's word and inform you how to trust more fully. These three aspects, which you'll see in your notes, are the serpent and its scheme, the symptoms and sentence of sin, and the seed and salvation. Alliteration for Eric Jett. So if you haven't done so already, please turn to Genesis 3. I'm going to give you a little backdrop. Adam and Eve have been placed by God in this lush, verdant, abundant, overflowing Garden of Eden with the benevolent permission to eat of any and every tree there, save one. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And everything God says is very good. Adam and his wife were naked and unashamed, holy, innocent, virtuous, living in perfect harmony with the animals and nature, as they all enjoyed the wondrous diversity and delights of a world full of goodness and pleasures, devoid of evil, sin, disease, death. Man, can't even imagine. Can't even imagine what it would have been like. 
And then we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which leads us to our first point. The serpent and its scheme. Let's begin with the serpent. We're only given a few details about it here in this passage. First, it's one of the beasts that God made. He's created. It's also in the garden and can talk. That's unusual. And it's described as being more crafty than all of the other animals. So crafty, as we'll soon see, that he is able to deceive Eve. Now, we will learn from other passages who and what exactly this serpent is. In Revelation 12, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world. So the serpent here in the garden, speaking with Eve, is none other than Satan, than the devil. How'd he get there? How'd he either possess or take the form of a serpent? Doesn't tell us here. Why did God let him into the garden knowing that he had a nefarious plan? Let him get within earshot of Eve and talk to her, especially knowing that he was so clever and cunning. We're not told here either. We're only told that the serpent was able to begin implementing his scheme to deceive Adam and Eve, that their thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to God. That's what Paul would say later. And so the serpent stripes up a conversation with Eve and begins asking questions, questions that will lead her and her husband to doubt the trustworthiness of God and his word. That was the point. Get rid of that sincere devotion to God by doubting his word. Now, I want you to notice a particular aspect of this conversation as it begins. It's between serpent, the serpent, and Eve. Anybody wondering where Adam is? What is he doing during all of this? Verse 6, it says that he is there with her. Huh. He's there. Yet he's not a part of this conversation that we can see. God had made him the covenant head. He was the one responsible for caring for, for loving, for leading, and representing Eve. He's the one responsible for what happens, and yet he's not engaged in the conversation. Lo and behold, when all said and done, he's like, oh, it's her fault anyway. Hmm. So now, let's look at the serpent's scheme in the conversation. He, he first asks her, did, did God actually, did he really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, it seems like a genuine question, right? But it's not. 
He knows exactly what God said, didn't he? He changes the words. Under the guise of this seemingly innocuous question, there's an unspoken insinuation, isn't there? Do you see it? Look at how he subtly misconstrues God's words by exaggerating what God had prohibited. God had said they could eat of every tree, every one of them, save one. And so the serpent emphasizes not the multitude, not everything that they could have, not the diversity that Adam and Eve could partake of, but cleverly turns her attention to what she couldn't have. How can can you refuse something you've never even tried? It's the first case of FOMO, isn't it? For those of you who don't know, it's fear of missing out. It was as if to ask, so what all is God withholding from your enjoyment? I mean, he actually told you there were things you couldn't have? It was the first time that Eve had heard someone question God's intentions. It had never occurred to her that God's words, actions, and character could be subject to her judgment. By the question, the serpent has ever so subtly planted suspicion about God in her mind. So she replies to the serpent, "Um, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Hmm. Is that what God said? Her, her response indicates a subtle shift in her thinking that has gone on already. The serpent's introduction of suspicion has already begun to take effect in her thoughts. First, she subtracts from God's words. Did you hear it? She didn't say every tree. Well, you can eat of the trees. Huh. But then she adds to God's words as well. Neither shall you touch it. She has now exaggerated the prohibition, just like Satan did. Yeah! It's just in a different way. In correcting the serpent's falsehood, she has suddenly created a falsehood of her own. She's changed God's words. She's added to them added words that weren't his words at all, which I think is part of that as well. But the serpent said to the woman, you you won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, now that the small fissures of suspicion and mistrust in her thinking have begun, 
The serpent takes his deception to the next level. You won't surely die. He's introducing an alternate truth. She already introduced an alternate truth. Why not another one? You say God said this, but I'm telling you something different. I say God got it wrong here. Don't you see how he's actually holding out on you? Don't you see that he's, he's, he's not letting you have everything? He just said these things to keep you from being like him. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see it? The appeal the serpent is making. Why just trust God's word? Why are you taking his word for it? Who made him God? Why is he the only one that gets determined good and evil? Don't you see? God's words should be subject to your judgments, your determination instead of you being subject to them. Doesn't knowing good and evil sound like something you'd like to know as well? You can be like him. You can be a God like him, determining for yourself what is good and what is bad based upon what you like and don't like. Sounds like a, a song from a children's movie that was fairly popular a few years ago. It's time to see what you can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. Let it go. Let it go. That's not the way she sang it. Why follow God's dictates when you can decide for yourself? Judge for yourself. You can judge God's actions and commands instead of them judging you. Isn't that better, Eve? You're intelligent. You're smart. You're a good person. She wants a good person. Able to make your own assessments and draw your own conclusions. You should think for yourself and decide what's best for you, not let someone else decide it for you. Does that sound familiar to anyone in this room? The only person you can really trust is yourself. only person you can really trust is yourself, Eve. Do you doubt that's what he's tempting her with? <laughs> Look at her reaction. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, wow, that looks good, and that it was a delight to the eyes, wow, that looks really good. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate. She elevated her estimations and her desires above God's word. Her observations, her aspirations. She deemed her goodness and her abilities of reason and discernment to be more trustworthy than God's words. And it wasn't just Eve, was it? 
And she took and gave some to her husband, who was with her. Well, that looks good, and you're not dead, so. Hmm? He ate. Adam also decides to trust someone else's word above God's. Look at verse 17, where the Lord addresses Adam's sin directly. What does he say? He says, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. He's saying, Adam, you chose to heed another's voice. He trusted Eve rather than the Lord when their messages conflicted with one another. Now, is God's rebuke here because he doesn't want husbands listening to their wives? <laughs> Everybody say, no. Men, you should carefully and attentively listen to your wives. In our house, Jason often says, Jen is the second Holy Spirit. That's because God frequently speaks wisdom through her words to me. The rebuke isn't about the who. It's about esteeming or trusting anyone else's words above God's word. That's what this is about. Adam then tried to blame Eve. <laughs> the woman, God, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Her fault. And if it's not her fault, it's your fault for giving her to me. But the Lord expresses why it was Adam's fault. Regardless of what Eve said or did in the situation, he is ultimately responsible because he trusted someone else's words above God's. Eve, in turn, tried to blame the serpent. Well, the serpent deceived me and I ain't. But what did she do? It's the same thing. She trusted something, someone else's words above God's word. The serpent had led her astray from a sincere and pure devotion to God. He convinced her that her own goodness and wisdom and intelligence and judgment were more trustworthy than God's words. So, Things today, 2024, they're different and yet much the same. They're different in that we're not in an idyllic world nor in a sinless state. Can I get an amen on that one? Nor are we nearly as intelligent nearly is our thinking as nearly uncorrupted as theirs was. We are messed up, folks. 
far more. They were good. We think it was good back then. Ours is not. And yet, the similarity is the enemy's scheme. You see, he wants to lead you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And the primary way that he does this is by getting you to question God's word. To elevate your infinitely wise knowledge, your discernment, you, yourself, you are so smart and so good. You should be in judgment over God's word, not his word judging you. You're too smart. Judge for yourself. The independent, autonomous mindset is pure rebellion against God and the root of every human evil in society. Autonomy has horrific consequences which leads us to our second point. The symptoms and sentence of sin. So even though the serpent assured Eve that she wasn't going to die, and when she looked at the tree, she's like, that, that looks good. There's no reason I would think that this tree would kill me. After all, there was no poison going on back then, was there? There was no, nothing that would ever indicate that the tree would kill her. And Adam, looking at Eve and seeing that she didn't die, was like, yeah. What happened? Death immediately occurred. Both physical and spiritual death. God's warning was very telling. The words, you shall surely die, are actually the Hebrew word for death Repeated twice. Mot tamot. Dead, dead. Dying, you shall surely die. Hmm. Well, we know that repeated words are an emphasis in Scripture, for sure. He's saying, yep, you are going to die. He also seems to be saying, death will begin, and then you will ultimately die. And it seems like also suggested in this is the idea of two deaths or two types of death. <clears throat> and so, when I say death immediately ensued, I mean their bodies immediately began to physically die, which would eventually end in the cessation of life, death. And I also mean that they spiritually died at that moment. So let's look, see what happens. We read that when they had eaten, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and, and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and, and, and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and, and so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now remember, chapter 2 concluded with the words, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That phrase conveys the idea of innocence, purity. They walked freely before the presence of the Lord and one another because they were in this state of innocence and purity. There was nothing to be ashamed about. But in an, an immediate symptom of their sin was that their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. No, they weren't blind before. Can you imagine? This is a good world. I can't see anything. Then they eat of the tree. Oh, whoa! No, they weren't blind not talking about physical sight here. They are seeing in their mind's eye their now corrupted and naked spiritual condition. The phrase, they knew that they were naked, conveys the idea of the loss of innocence and purity. They instantly felt their shame, the kind of shame we feel when we're physically naked, utterly exposed for all the world to see us as we are. Any of you ever had naked dreams? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We joke about them frequently in my household. I'm going to have naked dreams tonight. And you can't do anything about it, huh? <laughs> And then you wake up, you're like, oh, I found covering. I woke up. We want to sew fig leaves together when we're in those dreams, don't we? I've got to find a way to cover, to hide myself behind so people don't see me. It's the same thing with the sewing together of fig leaves for Adam and Eve. You see, they now saw the result of evil in themselves. And through this instantaneous understanding of their own impurity, they also recognize their immediate separation from the perfectly pure and holy God. No longer could they stand freely in his presence. They now keenly felt their unholiness when his holy presence came near and they were afraid of God. Those are profound words. They were afraid. This is the first and the worst consequence of their sin. Enmity with God. They had died spiritually in that moment. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They had become pervasively soiled radically corrupt and had no hope of restoring themselves back to God. They tried sewing fig leaves to go, together to, to, cover, to cover what? Their guilt and shame. But that, that, that 
that doesn't do. They couldn't do. And so they fled for cover, trying to hide from the gaze of one whose eyes are too pure to look on evil and cannot tolerate wrongdoing. They somehow knew that if they were to be directly exposed to the one who is a consuming fire, the radiance of a holy God in their present nakedness, they would be consumed and stand everlasting judgment. From that moment on, the only thing they deserved from a perfectly holy God was unending judgment and condemnation. Unless the Lord could make a way to forgive and restore them to himself, they would receive the second death, where they and the devil who had deceived them would be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and be tormented day and night, forever and ever. As I said, there were also physical repercussions, natural symptoms of this sin as well. The Lord pronounces three judgments here. Each merits its own two or three sermons. Good luck. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, your translations might have read, your desire will be for your husband rather than contrary to. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice those last lines. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the judgment of physical death. Whereas before humanity would not physically die, now they would. Later in chapter 5, verse 5, we're told, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The process of physical death began the moment Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it not only affected Adam, but all of his descendants as well. As chapter 5 soberly repeats over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died. Who are Adam's descendants? 
everyone. All of humanity, as it says in Acts, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Do we have slides going, by the way? What happened to the slides? That's okay. Don't worry about it now. And as such, being Adam's descendants, we inherited two things. One is we inherited the image of God. Chapter 5 opens with, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So that's the pattern. Not only were Adam and Eve created in the image of God, so are all of Adam's descendants, which is every single human who has ever walked this earth save one. Number two, we also inherited Adam's sin nature. You see, Adam was the covenant head of all of humanity. He represented the best of us and all of us. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. He was our representative. His sin is imputed to each and every one of us. The sin nature is just as intrinsic to us as the image of God is, as descendants of Adam. And just as Adam died bodily, so too will we die bodily. As Paul said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is why there is death in this world, and why everyone dies. This is why there is death in the world, and why everyone dies. But there was more, isn't there? The symptoms and symptoms of sin carry through to everything else. In those judgments, we read, we see the curse affect the rest of the created order. And he said to Adam, thorns and thistles, you'll work hard. The ground, now, it affected the creative, created order. Natural disasters, disease, famine, animal predation, decay, all came as part of the curse of creation, as Paul comments in Romans. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only that, human pain and suffering, not just physical, but emotional, psychological, spiritual, are part and parcel in God's pronouncements to Eve. So are all forms of human conflict. All human relationships fall under this curse. People will rise against people, brother against brother. In chapter 4, we learn the story of two of their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain becomes angry with God and Abel 
because God accepts Abel's offering, but not his own. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Desire is contrary to you, but rule over. Huh. Almost the exact same phrasing of what God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's interesting. The word, phraseology, they're the same. The Hebrew word, el, can mean either for or against. The woman's desire for her husband is like sin's desire for Cain. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. Sin is not like, hey, I want, him, I want you to be well off. And things, no. It's for that person, but it is contrary to, it is against that person. It's contrary to its object's highest good. This phrase here is a clear reference to the relational conflicts and dynamics that will occur within all interpersonal human relationships. The sinful inclination against others because we all ultimately want to be autonomous. We want to be in control. Sin wanted to control Cain. Eve wanted to control Adam. And she would be frustrated because Adam would be ruling Eve. It isn't just about those two. It's about all human relationships. This is the pattern that God is laying out. Conflict in human relationships. Because you know what? I want to control you. Don't you want to control me? Don't lie. And this sinful craving eventually culminated one day when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The root of all injustice is sin. The root of all suffering is sin. The root of all death sin. But, but, isn't that a great word? But, but God. (laughs) Like I said earlier, if we just know the reason why this world and humanity are so broken, but are left with no hope for the future, no hope for a future deliverance from and victory over the second death and everlasting suffering, then what hope is there? But there's hope. There's hope. Hope Chapel. There is hope. An amazing hope of victory over, deliverance from. And they're promised in the very words that we've just been looking at. (laughs) Mind-blowing. It really is. 
This brings us to our third point, the seed and salvation. Within these very words of judgment, the Lord also makes announcements of salvation, of deliverance from judgment. Isn't that cool? God is so much smarter than all of us combined for all of eternity combined. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. These announcements that God makes are God's words. And so, for Adam and Eve to obtain what these words announced, what must they do? (laughs) Do what they didn't do before. Believe God's words. Trust God's words. The question before them is whether or not they're going to believe what God is telling them this time. Trust what he is pronouncing about salvation amid these oracles of judgment. As God declares judgment through the covenant of works, he announces salvation through a covenant of grace. As God declares judgment through the covenant of works, he announces salvation through a covenant of grace. I just want to point out a a couple of these grace-filled announcements to you all. The first gracious announcement is that God tells Adam that he's going to have to work hard and endure pain to receive sustenance for life. Well, that doesn't sound like a... Did you catch that? To, he's going he's to do these things to continue to live. He isn't immediately going to die and face the fearful expectation of judgment. It's appointed to man to die once and then the judgment. But he's not. I mean, there was no reason that they shouldn't have been killed right then and there. Apart from the sheer grace of God. And yet, the Lord was patient with them, not wanting them to perish, but to come to repentance. Sounds like a verse we know. And so in God's forbearance, he left those sins committed beforehand unpunished. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. She hadn't read my sermon and yet she quoted that this morning, didn't she? Also, we see in God's words to them that they were going to have children. Adam and Eve are going to have offspring. And though it's going to be painful, and it's not just childbirth we're talking about, is it, folks? It gets more painful, not less. It's an amazing announcement. They had every natural reason to believe that they were going to die before they had children. But the Lord says otherwise. 
And in the most amazing announcement of all, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent here, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Adam and Eve are sitting there listening to the Lord say this to the serpent. They're hearing God announce that one of Eve's future children will bruise or literally strike the serpent's head. Now the head symbolized the very center of life. Cut off somebody's head, you crush somebody's head, and they're going to live? Everybody say, no. It represents... The head represents the thought of authority, of, of rule, of life. To strike the head would be to totally and utterly defeat the serpent, counter the effects of the fall, and overthrow his realm. Her seed, her offspring would do this. That's good news. That's why this verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. One of the fascinating elements of this announcement is that this is the seed of the woman. That's interesting. Huh. Doesn't say anything about Adam. Why not? How, how could this be? How, how could there be a seed of the woman but not the seed of Adam? Hmm. Isn't everyone that ever walked the earth also the seed of Adam? Save one. If there were a virgin birth. <laughs> Woo! If there were a virgin birth, then it wouldn't have Adam's sin nature. Remember, he was a representative, but he doesn't represent this one. His sin was imputed to all except the one, the seed. This is the promise of a second Adam, one with a sinless, uncorrupted image of God. But the seed bringing salvation is not without a cost, as it says here. Satan would bruise the heel of this seed. Same word, bruise. But it's the heel instead of the head. Satan would strike a painful, deadly blow to the seed. But that blow would not ultimately defeat or destroy the seed. He would rise victorious. He would live and bring victory over death, over the fall. And get this. The future seed would remove their nakedness and restore them to God. 
So he says all this. God says this. What is their response? Look at verse 20. Adam, this is next next verse. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. That's faith, folks. God says all of these words. Adam has reason to think God is going to kill them. God says, I'm going to do it this way. Wow. And not only, not only would Eve bear children, not only would she be the mother of all humanity, I love what he says here. Also, the mother of all the living. What is that? It's through her seed that life comes. And so she becomes the mother of all who have life through her seed. Now, The next verse. 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Two innocent animals were sacrificed in their place. And God used the animal skins to fashion clothes to cover their nakedness. This is the first substitutionary atonement. The lives of the animals were substituted for the lives of Adam and Eve, looking forward to when the seed would be bruised when he would die in their place to remove their guilt, their nakedness before a holy God. And guess what? (laughs) The seed has come, folks. He has come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He will make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. That's the clothing. You're accounted as righteous. How does it work? Isaiah says it in a different place, 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. That's what I want you all to do all the time. Why? 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 Why does he want us to exalt in his God? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
he has covered my nakedness with the robe of righteousness. Paul says, the judgment following one trespass, Adam's, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. John Piper said this. I thought it was profound. Adam is the historical ancestor of every people group on the face of the earth. This is not a myth. It's not an analogy. It's not an illustration. It is historical fact. Adam, the first human being, sinned, and in him all human beings sinned, and all died, and all are condemned. And the remedy for that is another historical person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came in space and time to undo what Adam did. He trusted and obeyed God perfectly so that all who are in him by faith have that obedience imputed to them and become right with God. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to us through faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Death has been defeated. Where is your sting, O death? The seed is victorious, and he has promised. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, that's physically, yet shall he live spiritually forever, and you will have a new body that will go on forever. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? All of this is from the Bible. But will you trust it? It's the same question that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Has God really said there's a scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Pro Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, who's the main character, and Hopeful, his friend, are captured and thrown into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Doubting Castle. The names are very important in this book. There, a giant, whose name is Despair, beats them mercilessly and then leaves them suffering in the cold, wet, dark dungeon. The next day he returns, that is despair returns, urges them to give up all hope. 
and it beats them brutally again. And the next day, same thing. Give up hope. It beats them. And again the next, and the next. So there they were, thick dungeon walls, locked cell door, powerless before a sadistic giant called despair in a castle of doubt, seemingly without hope. Sometimes that seems like this life, doesn't it? Well, on Saturday, about midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray. And we're told they continued in prayer until almost the break of day. A little before dawn, Christian, as one half amazed, broke out into this passionate exclamation. What a fool I have been to lie in a stinking dungeon like this when I could just as well walk free. I have a key in my pocket next to my heart called promise. That will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. So Christian pulled the key from his chest pocket and fit it into the lock on the dungeon door. And he turned the key and the bolt released and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both fled the dark cell. There is hope. There is hope! Hope amid all of life's troubles. It's the key called promise. God's promise. Will you believe it? Will you trust it? It will free you from that dungeon of doubt and despair. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. For we would not know where we've come from and we wouldn't have hope but for your word. Telling us that you have made the way. You have paved the path. Thank you for giving it to us. Help us to trust it, to trust the truths in it, to trust that the seed has come and covered our nakedness. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your patience, for your kindness that leads us to repentance. And that it's your blood that brings forgiveness. We praise you. We praise you. We exalt in our God who has clothed us 
with a robe of righteousness. Amen.